This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Great day for talk radio. It's one of those days where uh, there is a lot to discuss. Fallout from yesterday and Jane Philpott resigning from cabinet. Will she maintain her good standing in caucus? I see where Sheila Copps is tweeting that uh, Justin Trudeau has to lance the boil in caucus. Uh, <laughs> means, I guess, throw some people over, overboard. And if it means that these two principals, uh, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, who maintain that they're still going to run under the Liberal banner. Uh, boy, how this is going to be ameliorated or accommodated is a real interesting question. Is that what Sheila's alluding to? I don't know. She's presenting herself as uh, one who believes that the 9,000 jobs in Quebec are somehow more important than principal, uh, which led me to conclude that, uh, say, she was part of that old guard, wasn't she? <laughs> After all, why should we be surprised? She learned at the knee of some of the best. Uh, so there's uh, there's that, and uh, we will broach that in the hour. Certainly, uh, there are a lot of different implications to the story as it gathers more momentum. A poll just done by Ipsos shows that, uh, well, the Conservatives are the beneficiaries of all of this. They have a nine-point lead in Ontario over the uh, the Liberals, and this is where the election could be won or lost. It's a prohibitive lead at this point. If the election were be held to be held today, they win the election, the Conservatives do, uh, in and around the 905 especially. There's like 70 seats, and uh, in all of Quebec, there's 78, and so uh, Quebec may not be the player or the game-changer that it has been historically, even though the Prime Minister is on record as saying this is where the best Prime Ministers come from. You might recall that, and uh, <laughs> it's... It's become uh, kind of toxic now to suggest that Quebec is the favorite son. That's what the whole SNC-Lavalin thing is perceived to be about uh, with a lot of folks. And we'll get to it. Joe Oliver is going to join us uh, at the bottom of the hour, former PC finance minister. You know, the Liberals are cobbling together a budget. Maybe Jane Philpott, as I guess the Treasury Board president, said, I don't need the drudgery and the drollery of all that. Get me out of finance. And she pulled the ripcord. I don't know. Just speculating. But uh, we'll see if they're... Might be some baubles or goodies in store to try to uh, placate an unruly public here, as the poll results are showing. However, on another matter closer to home, we have had uh, the story where Brad Blair was fired as the deputy commissioner of the OPP yesterday. And uh, he believes that there was a lot of political interference insofar as that's concerned, given that he's, well, uh, seen by some to be, including the NDP, a whistleblower drawing attention to the fact that uh, Ron Tavner, a friend of the Ford family and knowing the premier for a lot of years, was to be the commissioner of the OPP. And uh, when he went public about this, well, that's where he crossed the line, according to Sylvia Jones, who had joined us earlier in the program, that uh, she explains he was sent a memo warning him about his actions. He also could have respected his oath of office and not started to allow his lawyer or himself to distribute them, which is why uh, in the end, at the end of December on the 28th, he was issued a memo reminding him of his responsibilities as a public servant. He chose to ignore that uh, uh, memo, and as I say, chose a different path. All right, that was Sylvia Jones again uh, earlier last hour, and she is the minister in charge of that particular file. It was her deputy minister who signed off on the firing, and uh, now it's all this, whether or not he's got some recourse before the law, or is he seen as insubordinate, and uh, perhaps he's breached any kind of uh, a settlement or compensation. Let's find out from an employment lawyer of note, Stan Fainsleberg has joined us. He's an associate at Samfuru Tamarkin, and he's weighing in on this. Stan, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, John. How are you? I'm very good. I'm kind of curious, though, as this Brad Blair story, it's uh, 
I guess, going to be presented to the court. But from your perspective as an employment lawyer, mm-hmm. given that we heard Sylvia Jones, the minister, saying today and in the legislature as well, uh, he was warned not to breach a public confidence. And therefore, uh, I guess he broke uh, the rules of engagement and is insubordinate. Uh, where do you see it? Well, I mean, so firstly, I will say that this is a very unique situation. Whenever you're dealing with police, they, it's their own industry. And so you had mentioned court earlier, and my understanding of it is that he, there's a separate complete system for him to grieve this termination. It's before what's called the Grievance Settlement Board that's specifically set up for public service uh, employees. So that would be his recourse to go to the Grievance and Settlement Board and to say that this was not a termination for, uh, for cause or should not be viewed from a legal perspective to constitute termination for cause, more, more akin to how unions work and grievances before arbitrators at the union, uh, with unions. So that being said, I mean, in the normal course with a normal employee, they certainly could grieve this, uh, and they could certainly take it to court and say that this is not this doesn't amount to cause. And there's many factors that are very contextual to the actual situation to determine whether cause is found or not. One particular factor that probably is very important in Mr. Blair's situation is the fact that he is such a high-ranking officer. Mm-hmm. And in a, corp- in a corporate sphere, in a public sphere, there is this concept of, of fiduciary duty. And it's basically, as a high-ranking member of your corporation, of a company, of a public institution, you owe a greater obligation than any normal employee. And so it may well, be... Well, hang on. Who do you owe that obligation to? Well, it would be to the entity itself, to the corporation, to the public, uh, or the public institution. Right. Which, again, uh, you know, we're going to have to parse these terms of mm-hmm. uh, owing the, the duty to, because Sylvia Jones, the minister, told me just last hour mm-hmm. that he uh, broke faith with the rank and file, and yet uh, his... Uh, I guess people who are uh, supportive of him suggesting that this was done in the interests of the demoralized rank and file. So whose whose version do we believe? Well, I mean that's that's very difficult to, for us to say in the abstract. Uh, I'm sure that there's both sides that have valid concerns here. I mean, ultimately, the duty is owed to his superiors in a sense because they do make up the what the controlling mind of the corporation. Well, and it yeah. said that he serves at the pleasure of the premier. Uh, I don't know that for certain because I'm not sure if it, I know cabinet appointments certainly are, and at the end of the day, a cabinet appointment can be removed from office for any reason at the pleasure of the premier. I'm not certain if that's act- accurate in this particular situation. But there, if that is the case, then really he has no no recourse because there can be no. I mean, his termination is always considered to be just in that sense, because he could be let go for any reason whatsoever. As you say, he serves purely at the pleasure of the premier. Well, and this has been communicated to me, and uh, I guess more or less reiterated by Sylvia Jones, the minister, last hour. Uh, And he's saying that because, yes, uh, he may have uh, brought forth knowledge of uh, certain documents that uh, were part of his case, and he went public with them. He says that uh, the court just could have asked to seal the documents, or at least the province could have asked just to seal the documents. It would have been no harm, no foul. And Sylvia Jones' response to that was, well, he shouldn't have released them to begin with. That wasn't within his right to do. And uh, that's where we're at loggerheads here. 
And I think it's more, even more than that when you consider it, because as, as Sylvia Jones had mentioned earlier, that they, they sent him a memo saying that this was improper. You know, whether from legal perspective it's improper or not is a separate consideration, but certainly from the government's perspective, they perceive this to be uh, insubordinate. And, and, you know, they asked him to stop. And therefore, and after that, he continues down the same path. So whether the initial action itself was improper, certainly the secondary action, the insubordination that he displayed in the face of his superiors telling him that you need to stop doing this, that to me is definitely a cause for concern. All right. Well, uh, there's that word again, cause. Uh, yeah. But just cause. I mean, is a whistleblower, can you fire a whistleblower for cause? I, you know, it's, Difficult to say. I can certainly think of some scenario where somebody had divulged information that was just so sensitive that, yes, it may be in the public interest, but nevertheless, there may be alternative ways to get the information out there. One of the things that I would like to know in Mr. Blair's situation specifically is what channels did he try to go through internally to voice his concerns before he decided to go public? Mm. Because if his first step was to go public, then I think his motives have to be questioned, in, especially in an institution that's as hierarchical as a, the police. I mean, their you know, service is dictated, you know, every, everyone, everything is top-down. Orders are made at the top, and you know, whether you agree with them or not, it's not up to us as individuals to question something, an order from our superiors unless it's such so clearly a violation. Well, the government's government's position is it's just sour grapes, and uh, that's why he went public. And uh, then he talked about, you know, this custom van that I guess the, the premier mm-hmm. had allegedly ordered certain specs and mm-hmm. uh, what have you. I mean, that's still in dispute. The other thing, though, is 33 years, I read his resignation letter. Uh, he talks about, you know, how it was such a privilege to serve and so on and so forth. But I'm thinking at the timeline, 33 years does any of this tend to disqualify him from a worthwhile severance? Uh, I don't know what the pension arrangements are or anything like that. Uh, how would that work? Well, those things, again, in the normal course, they don't aren't really factors to consider when discussing a severance. I mean, ultimately, if he is found to be, have been terminated without cause or that there was no cause to let him go, then the factors that we consider when evaluating his severance are his age, his position, his length of service, and his ability to find a new job. And considering his 33 years uh, and the fact that his position is so unique, I mean, there's not many other deputy uh, commissioners positions out there in police services, I suspect that really he would be entitled to a significant amount of severance. Well, all right. And uh, so I guess this is going before the court, is it not? A divisional court? Uh, well, I, again, my understanding is that there's a grievance settlement uh, board where he gets to grieve this, because I, I had read the termination letter provided to him, and the authority that was being used to, to dismiss him from his, comp- uh, from his position was under the Public Services of Ontario Act. Right. And within the framework of that act, if he wants to challenge that dismissal, he goes to the grievance settlement board to challenge that dismissal. And I, again, assuming if it's similar to the union context, there are a whole host of outcomes, one of which is he can get a severance, one of which is that the dismissal could be upheld and he gets nothing, one of which is that it's found that it was unfair and that there was no cause and that he could be reinstated to his position with or without back pay. Well, okay. How practical is that? I know that sometimes is uh, another option, but how often are people actually reinstated? It seems like you can't cross that bridge once it's been burned. I mean, it does happen. It certainly happens. I've seen it in the case law. In a situation like this where 
you have such a high-ranking and high-profile case, I suspect that any the, the board would probably consider it an inappropriate remedy. But you'd be surprised that, you know, regardless of whether the employer wants you back, it's sometimes the remedy that's ordered by the board and everybody has to live with it. Well, that'll be interesting. That <laughs> All right. Uh, like that won't impact morale uh, one yeah. way or the other. Somebody's going to be disaffected. All right. Well, Stan, it's uh, great to get an explanation, and it just adds uh, more luster to this story as we continue to pursue it and see its outcome. Thanks so much for your time. Same to you. You have a great day. And you. Stan Fainzelberg is an employment lawyer with Samfuru Tamarkin. Now you know, uh, or I guess we're uh, just a little more educated as a result. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.